Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. The Doom of the Griffiths by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Chapter 1. I have always been much interested by the traditions which are scattered up and down North Wales relating to Owen Glendower. Owain Glender is the national spelling of the name, and I fully enter into the feeling which makes the Welsh peasant still look upon him as the hero of his country. There was great joy among many of the inhabitants of the Principality, when the subject of the Welsh prize poem at Oxford, some fifteen or sixteen years ago, was announced to be Owain Glender. It was the most proudly national subject that had been given for years. Perhaps, some may not be aware that this redoubt chieftain is, even in the present days of enlightenment, as famous among his illiterate countrymen for his magical powers as for his patriotism. He says himself, or Shakespeare says it for him, which is much the same thing. And few among the lower orders in the principality would think of asking Hotspur's irreverent question in reply. Among other traditions preserved relative to this part of the Welsh hero's character is the old family prophecy which gives title to this tale. When Sir David Gam as black a traitor as if he had been born in Bilth, sought to murder Owen at Mackenleth, there was one with him whose name Glen a little dreamed of having associated with his enemies. Rhys A.P.G.R.Y.F.Y.D.D., his old familiar friend, his relation, his more than brother, had consented unto his blood. Sir David Gam might be forgiven, but one whom he had loved, and who had betrayed him, could never be forgiven. Glender was too deeply read in the human heart to kill him. No, he let him live on, the loathing and scorn of his compatriots, and the victim of bitter remorse. The mark of Cain was upon him. But before he went forth, while he yet stood a prisoner, cowering beneath his conscience before Owain Glender, that chieftain passed the doom upon him and his race. I doom thee to live, because I know thou wilt pray for death. Thou shalt live on beyond the natural term of the life of man, the scorn of all good men. The very children shall point to thee with hissing tongue, and say, There goes one who would have shed a brother's blood, for I love thee more than a brother, O Rhys A.P.G.R.Y.F.Y.D.D. Thou shalt live on to see all of thy house, except the weakling in arms, perish by the sword. Thy race shall be accursed. Each generation shall see their lands melt away like snow. Yet their wealth shall vanish, though they may labor night and day to heap up gold. And when nine generations have passed from the face of the earth, thy blood shall no longer flow in the veins of any human being. In those days the last male of thy race shall avenge me. The son shall slay the father. Such was the traditionary account of Owain Glender's speech to his once trusted friend. And it was declared that the doom had been fulfilled in all things that live in as miserly a manner as they would, the Griffiths never were wealthy and prosperous, indeed that their worldly stock diminished without any visible cause. But the lapse of many years had almost deadened the wonder-inspiring power of the whole curse. It was only brought forth from the hordes of memory when some untoward event happened to the Griffiths family, and in the eighth generation the faith in the prophecy was nearly destroyed by the marriage of the Griffiths of that day to a Miss Owen, who, unexpectedly, by the death of a brother, became an heiress, to no considerable amount, to be sure, but enough to make the prophecy appear reversed. 
the heiress and her husband removed from his small patrimonial estate in Miryoneshire to her heritage in Carnarvonshire, and for a time the prophecy lay dormant. If you go from Tremadoc to Cricketh, you pass by the parochial church of Innocent Hannon, situated in a boggy valley running from the mountains, which shoulder up to the rivals down to Cardigan Bay. This tract of land has every appearance of having been redeemed at no distant period of time from the sea, and has all the desolate rankness often attendant upon such marshes. But the valley beyond, similar in character, had yet more of gloom at the time of which I write. In the higher part there were large plantations of firs, set too closely to attain any size, and remaining stunted in height and scrubby in appearance. Indeed, many of the smaller and more weakly had died, and the bark had fallen down on the brown soil neglected and unnoticed. These trees had a ghastly appearance, with their white trunks seen by the dim light which struggled through the thick boughs above. Nearer to the sea, the valley assumed a more open, though hardly a more cheerful character. It looked dark and overhung by sea fog through the greater part of the year, and even a farmhouse, which usually imparts something of cheerfulness to a landscape, failed to do so here. This valley formed the greater part of the estate to which Owen Griffiths became entitled by right of his wife. In the higher part of the valley was situated the family mansion, or rather dwelling house, for a mansion, is too grand a word to apply to the clumsy, but substantially built Bottlewin. It was square and heavy-looking, with just that much pretension to ornament necessary to distinguish it from the mere farmhouse. In this dwelling Mrs. Owen Griffiths bore her husband two sons, Llewellyn, the future squire, and Robert, who was early destined for the church. The only difference in their situation, up to the time when Robert was entered at Jesus College, was that the elder was invariably indulged by all around him, while Robert was thwarted and indulged by turns, that Llewellyn never learned anything from the poor Welsh parson, who was nominally his private tutor, while occasionally Squire Griffiths made a great point of enforcing Robert's diligence, telling him that, as he had his bread to earn, he must pay attention to his learning. There is no knowing how far the very irregular education he had received would have carried Robert through his college examinations. But, luckily for him in this respect, before such a trial of his learning came round, he heard of the death of his elder brother, after a short illness, brought on by a hard drinking bout. Of course, Robert was summoned home, and it seemed quite as much of course, now that there was no necessity for him to earn his bread by his learning, that he should not return to Oxford. So the half-educated, but not unintelligent, young man continued at home during the short remainder of his parents' lifetime. His was not an uncommon character. In general he was mild, indolent, and easily managed, but once thoroughly roused, his passions were vehement and fearful. He seemed, indeed, almost afraid of himself, and in common hardly dared to give way to justifiable anger. So much did he dread losing his self-control. Had he been judiciously educated, he would, probably, have distinguished himself in those branches of literature which call for taste and imagination, rather than any exertion of reflection or judgment. As it was, his literary taste showed itself in making collections of Cambrian antiquities of every description, till his stock of Welsh misses would have excited the envy of Dr. Pugh himself, had he been alive at the time of which I write. There is one characteristic of Robert Griffiths which I have omitted to note, and which was peculiar among his class. He was no hard drinker, whether it was that his head was easily affected, 
or that his partially refined taste led him to dislike intoxication and its attendant circumstances, I cannot say. But at five and twenty Robert Griffiths was habitually sober, a thing so rare in Alawayan that he was almost shunned as a churlish, unsociable being, and paused much of his time in solitude. About this time, he had to appear in some case that was tried at the Carnarvon Assizes, and while there, was a guest at the house of his agent, a shrewd, sensible Welsh attorney, with one daughter, who had charms enough to captivate Robert Griffiths. Though he remained only a few days at her father's house, they were sufficient to decide his affections, and short was the period allowed to elapse before he brought home a mistress to Bodowin. The new Mrs. Griffiths was a gentle, yielding person, full of love toward her husband, of whom, nevertheless, she stood something in awe, partly arising from the difference in their ages, partly from his devoting much time to studies of which she could understand nothing. She soon made him the father of a blooming little daughter, called Ogherod after her mother. Then there came several uneventful years in the household of Bodowin, and when the old women had one and all declared that the cradle would not rock again, Mrs. Griffiths bore the son and heir. His birth was soon followed by his mother's death. She had been ailing and low-spirited during her pregnancy, and she seemed to lack the buoyancy of body and mind requisite to bring her round after her time of trial. Her husband, who loved her all the more from having few other claims on his affections, was deeply grieved by her early death, and his only comforter was the sweet little boy whom she had left behind. That part of the squire's character, which was so tender and almost feminine, seemed called forth by the helpless situation of the little infant, who stretched out his arms to his father with the same earnest cooing that happier children make use of to their mother alone. Ogharad was almost neglected, while the little Owen was king of the house, still next to his father, none tended him so lovingly as his sister. She was so accustomed to give way to him that it was no longer a hardship. By night and by day Owen was the constant companion of his father, and increasing years seemed only to confirm the custom. It was an unnatural life for the child, seeing no bright little faces peering into his own, for Ogherod was, as I said before, five or six years older, and her face, poor motherless girl, was often anything but bright, hearing no din of clear ringing voices, but day after day sharing the otherwise solitary hours of his father, whether in the dim room, surrounded by wizard-like antiquities, or pattering his little feet to keep up with his, Tada, in his mountain rambles or shooting excursions. When the pair came to some little foaming brook, where the stepping stones were far and wide, the father carried his little boy across with the tenderest care. When the lad was weary, they rested, he cradled in his father's arms, or the squire would lift him up and carry him to his home again. The boy was indulged, for his father felt flattered by the desire, in his wish of sharing his meals and keeping the same hours. All this indulgence did not render Owen inamiable, but it made him woeful, and not a happy child. He had a thoughtful look, not common to the face of a young boy. He knew no games, no merry sports. His information was of an imaginative and speculative character. His father delighted to interest him in his own studies, without considering how far they were healthy for so young a mind. Of course Squire Griffiths was not unaware of the prophecy which was to be fulfilled in his generation. He would occasionally refer to it when among his friends, with skeptical levity but in truth it lay nearer to his heart than he chose to acknowledge. 
his strong imagination rendered him peculiarly impressible on such subjects, while his judgment, seldom exercised or fortified by severe thought, could not prevent his continually recurring to it. He used to gaze on the half-sad countenance of the child, who sat looking up into his face with his large dark eyes, so fondly yet so inquiringly, till the old legend swelled around his heart, and became too painful for him not to require sympathy. Besides, the overpowering love he bore to the child seemed to demand fuller vent and tender words. It made him like, yet dread, to upbraid its object for the fearful contrast foretold. Still Squire Griffiths told the legend, in a half-jesting manner, to his little son, when they were roaming over the wild heaths in the autumn days. The saddest of the year, or while they sat in the oak-wainscoted room, surrounded by mysterious relics that gleamed strangely forth by the flickering firelight. The legend was wrought into the boy's mind, and he would crave, yet tremble, to hear it told over and over again, while the words were intermingled with caresses and questions as to his love. Occasionally his loving words and actions were cut short by his father's light yet bitter speech. Get thee away, my lad, thou knowest not what is to come of all this love. When Ogherd was seventeen, and Owen eleven or twelve, the rector of the parish in which Bodwin was situated, endeavored to prevail on Squire Griffiths to send the boy to school. Now, this rector had many congenial tastes with his parishioner, and was his only intimate, and by repeated arguments, he succeeded in convincing the squire that the unnatural life Owen was leading was in every way injurious. Unwillingly was the father wrought to part from his son, but he did at length send him to the grammar school at Bangor, then under the management of an excellent classic. Here Owen showed that he had more talents than the rector had given him credit for, when he affirmed that the lad had been completely stupefied by the life he led at Bodwin. He bade fair to do credit to the school in the peculiar branch of learning for which it was famous. But he was not popular among his schoolfellows. He was wayward though, to a certain degree, generous and unselfish. He was reserved but gentle, except when the tremendous bursts of passion, similar in character to those of his father, forced their way. On his return from school one Christmas time, when he had been a year or so at Bangor, he was stunned by hearing that the undervalued Ogherd was about to be married to a gentleman of South Wales, residing near Aberystwyth. Boys seldom appreciate their sisters, but Owen thought of the many slights with which he had requited the patient Ogherd, and he gave way to bitter regrets, which, with a selfish want of control over his words, he kept expressing to his father, until the squire was thoroughly hurt and chagrined at the repeated exclamations of, What shall we do when Ogherd is gone? How dull we shall be when Ogherod is married! Owen's holidays were prolonged a few weeks, in order that he might be present at the wedding, and when all the festivities were over, and the bride and bridegroom had left Bodwin, the boy and his father really felt how much they missed the quiet, loving Ogherod. She had performed so many thoughtful, noiseless little offices, on which their daily comfort depended, and now she was gone, the household seemed to miss the spirit that peacefully kept it in order. The servants roamed about in search of commands and directions, the rooms had no longer the unobtrusive ordering of taste to make them cheerful, the very fires burned dim, and were always sinking down into dull heaps of grey ashes. Altogether Owen did not regret his return to Bangor, and this also the mortified parent perceived. Squire Griffiths was a selfish parent. Letters in those days were a rare occurrence. 
Owen usually received one during his half-yearly absences from home, and occasionally his father paid him a visit. This half-year the boy had no visit, nor even a letter, till very near the time of his leaving school, and then he was astounded by the intelligence that his father was married again. Then came one of his paroxysms of rage, the more disastrous in its effects upon his character because it could find no vent in action. Independently of slight to the memory of the first wife which children are so apt to fancy such an action implies, Owen had hitherto considered himself, and with justice, the first object of his father's life. They had been so much to each other, and now a shapeless, but too real something had come between him and his father there forever. He felt as if his permission should have been asked, as if he should have been consulted. Certainly he ought to have been told of the intended event. So the squire felt, and hence his constrained letter which had so much increased the bitterness of Owen's feelings. With all this anger, when Owen saw his stepmother, he thought he had never seen so beautiful a woman for her age, for she was no longer in the bloom of youth, being a widow when his father married her. Her manners, to the Welsh lad, who had seen little of female grace among the families of the few antiquarians with whom his father visited, were so fascinating that he watched her with a sort of breathless admiration. Her measured grace, her faultless movements, her tones of voice sweet, till the ear was sated with their sweetness, made Owen less angry at his father's marriage. Yet he felt, more than ever, that the cloud was between him and his father, that the hasty letter he had sent in answer to the announcement of his wedding was not forgotten, although no allusion was ever made to it. He was no longer his father's confidant, hardly ever his father's companion, for the newly married wife was all in all to the squire, and his son felt himself almost a cipher, where he had so long been everything. The lady herself had ever the softest consideration for her stepson, almost too obtrusive was the attention paid to his wishes, but still he fancied that the heart had no part in the winning advances. There was a watchful glance of the eye that Owen once or twice caught when she had imagined herself unobserved and many other nameless little circumstances, that gave him a strong feeling of want of sincerity in his stepmother. Mrs. Owen brought with her into the family her little child by her first husband, a boy nearly three years old. He was one of those elfish, observant, mocking children, over whose feelings you seem to have no control, agile and mischievous, his little practical jokes, at first performed in ignorance of the pain he gave, but afterward proceeding to a malicious pleasure in suffering, really seemed to afford some ground to the superstitious notion of some of the common people that he was a fairy changeling. Years passed on, and as Owen grew older he became more observant. He saw, even in his occasional visits at home, for from school he had passed on to college, that a great change had taken place in the outward manifestations of his father's character and by degrees Owen traced this change to the influence of his stepmother, so slight, so imperceptible to the common observer, yet so resistless in its effects. Squire Griffiths caught up his wife's humbly advanced opinions, and unawares to himself, adopted them as his own, defying all argument and opposition. It was the same with her wishes, they met their fulfillment, from the extreme and delicate art with which she insinuated them into her husband's mind, as his own. She sacrificed the show of authority for the power. At last, when Owen perceived some oppressive act in his father's conduct toward his dependents, or some unaccountable thwarting of his own wishes, he fancied he saw his stepmother's secret influence thus displayed, 
however much she might regret the injustice of his father's actions in her conversations with him when they were alone. His father was fast losing his tempered habits, and frequent intoxication soon took its usual effect upon the temper. Yet even here was the spell of his wife upon him. Before her he placed a restraint upon his passion, yet she was perfectly aware of his irritable disposition, and directed it hither and thither with the same apparent ignorance of the tendency of her words. Meanwhile Owen's situation became peculiarly mortifying to a youth whose early remembrances afforded such a contrast to his present state. As a child, he had been elevated to the consequence of a man before his years gave any mental check to the selfishness which such conduct was likely to engender. He could remember when his will was law to the servants and dependents, and his sympathy necessary to his father. Now he was as a cipher in his father's house, and the squire. Estranged in the first instance by a feeling of the injury he had done his son and not sooner acquainting him with his purposed marriage seemed rather to avoid, than to seek him as a companion, and too frequently showed the most utter indifference to the feelings and wishes which a young man of a high and independent spirit might be supposed to indulge. Perhaps Owen was not fully aware of the force of all these circumstances, for an actor in a family drama is seldom unimpassioned enough to be perfectly observant but he became moody and soured, brooding over his unloved existence, and craving with a human heart after sympathy. This feeling took more full possession of his mind when he had left college, and returned home to lead an idle and purposeless life. As the heir, there was no worldly necessity for exertion. His father was too much of a Welsh squire to dream of the moral necessity, and he himself had not sufficient strength of mind to decide at once upon abandoning a place and mode of life which abounded in daily mortifications. Yet to this course his judgment was slowly tending, when some circumstances occurred to detain him at Bodowin. It was not to be expected that harmony would long be preserved, even in appearance, between an unguarded and soured young man, such as Owen, and his wary stepmother, when he had once left college, and come, not as a visitor, but as the heir to his father's house. Some cause of difference occurred, where the woman subdued her hidden anger sufficiently to become convinced that Owen was not entirely the dupe she had believed him to be. Henceforward there was no peace between them. Not in vulgar altercations did this show itself, but in moody reserve on Owen's part, and in undisguised and contemptuous pursuance of her own plans by his stepmother. Bodwin was no longer a place where, if Owen was not loved or attended to, he could at least find peace, and care for himself. He was thwarted at every step, and in every wish, by his father's desire, apparently, while the wife sat by with a smile of triumph on her beautiful lips. So Owen went forth at the early day dawn, sometimes roaming about on the shore or the upland, shooting or fishing, as the season might be, but oftener. Stretched in indolent repose, on the short, sweet grass, indulging in gloomy and morbid reveries. He would fancy that this mortified state of existence was a dream, a horrible dream, from which he should awake and find himself again the sole object and darling of his father. And then he would start up and strive to shake off the incubus. There was the molten sunset of his childish memory, the gorgeous crimson piles of glory in the west, fading away into the cold calm light of the rising moon, while here and there a cloud floated across the western heaven like a seraph's wing, in its flaming beauty. The earth was the same as in his childhood's days, full of gentle evening sounds, and the harmonies of twilight. 
The breeze came sweeping low over the heather and bluebells by his side, and the turf was sending up its evening. Incense of perfume. But life, and heart, and hope were changed forever since those bygone days. Or he would seat himself in a favorite niche of the rocks on mold jest, hidden by a stunted growth of the witty, or mountain ash, from general observation, with a rich tinted cushion of stone crop for his feet, and a straight precipice of rock rising just above. Here would he sit for hours, gazing idly at the bay below with its background of purple hills, and the little fishing sail on its bosom, showing white in the sunbeam, and gliding on in such harmony with the quiet beauty of the glassy sea. Or he would pull out an old school volume, his companion for years, and in morbid accordance with the dark legend that still lurked in the recesses of his mind. A shape of gloom in those innermost haunts awaiting its time to come forth in distinct outline. Would he turn to the old Greek dramas which treat of a family foredoomed by an avenging fate? The worn page opened of itself at the play of the Oedipus Tyrannus, and Owen dwelt with the craving disease upon the prophecy so nearly resembling that which concerned himself. With his consciousness of neglect, there was a sort of self-flattery in the consequence which the legend gave him. He almost wondered how they durst, with slights and insults, thus provoke the avenger. The days drifted onward. Often he would vehemently pursue some sylvan sport, till thought and feeling were lost in the violence of bodily exertion. Occasionally his evenings were spent at a small public house, such as stood by the unfrequented wayside, where the welcome, hearty, though bought, seemed so strongly to contrast with the gloomy negligence of home, unsympathizing home. One evening, Owen might be four or five and twenty, wearied with a day's shooting on the Clenany moors, he passed by the open door of the goat at Penmorpha. The light and the cheeriness within tempted him, poor self-exhausted man, as it has done many a one more wretched in worldly circumstances, to step in and take his evening meal where at least his presence was of some consequence. It was a busy day in that little hostel. A flock of sheep, amounting to some hundreds, had arrived at Penmorpha, on their road to England, and thronged the space before the house. Inside was the shrewd, kind-hearted hostess, bustling to and fro, with merry greetings for every tired drover who was to pass the night in her house, while the sheep were penned in a field close by. Ever and anon, she kept attending to the second crowd of guests, who were celebrating a rural wedding in her house. It was busy work to Martha Thomas, yet her smile never flagged, and when Owen Griffiths had finished his evening meal she was there, ready with the hope that it had done him good, and was to his mind, and a word of intelligence that the wedding folk were about to dance in the kitchen, and the harper was the famous Edward of Corwin. Owen, partly from good-natured compliance with his hostess's implied wish, and partly from curiosity, lounged to the passage which led to the kitchen, not the everyday, working, cooking kitchen, which was behind, but a good-sized room, where the mistress sat, when her work was done, and where the country people were commonly entertained at such merry-makings as the present. The lintels of the door formed a frame for the animated picture which Owen saw within, as he leaned against the wall in the dark passage. The red light of the fire, with every now and then a falling piece of turf sending forth a fresh blaze, shone full upon four young men who were dancing a measure something like a scotch reel, keeping admirable time in their rapid movements to the capital tune the harper was playing. They had their hats on when Owen first took his stand, but as they grew more and more animated they flung them away, 
and presently their shoes were kicked off with like disregard to the spot where they might happen to alight. Shouts of applause followed any remarkable exertion of agility, in which each seemed to try to excel his companions. At length, wearied and exhausted, they sat down, and the harper gradually changed to one of those wild, inspiring national airs for which he was so famous. The thronged audience sat earnest and breathless, and you might have heard a pin drop, except when some maiden passed hurriedly, with flaring candle and busy look, through to the real kitchen beyond. When he had finished his beautiful theme on The March of the Men of Harlech, he changed the measure again to Tri Chando Bunan, three hundred pounds, and immediately a most unmusical looking man began chanting Penelion, or a sort of recitative stanzas, which were soon taken up by another, and this amusement lasted so long that Owen grew weary, and was thinking of retreating from his post by the door, when some little bustle was occasioned, on the opposite side of the room, by the entrance of a middle-aged man, and a young girl, apparently his daughter. The man advanced to the bench occupied by the seniors of the party, who welcomed him with the usual pretty Welsh greeting. Pa sut may dy gallon? How is thy heart? And drinking his health passed on to him the cup of excellent CWRW. The girl, evidently a village belle, was as warmly greeted by the young men, while the girls eyed her rather askance with a half-jealous look, which Owen set down to the score of her extreme prettiness. Like most Welsh women, she was of middle size as to height, but beautifully made, with the most perfect yet delicate roundness in every limb. Her little mob cap was carefully adjusted to a face which was excessively pretty, though it never could be called handsome. It also was round, with the slightest tendency to the oval shape, richly colored though somewhat olive in complexion, with dimples in cheek and chin and the most scarlet lips Owen had ever seen, that were too short to meet over the small pearly teeth. The nose was the most effective feature, but the eyes were splendid. They were so long, so lustrous, yet at times so very soft under their thick fringe of eyelash. The nut-brown hair was carefully braided beneath the border of delicate lace. It was evident the little village beauty knew how to make the most of all her attractions, for the gay colors which were displayed in her neckerchief were in complete harmony with the complexion. Owen was much attracted, while yet he was amused, by the evident coquetry the girl displayed, collecting around her a whole bevy of young fellows, for each of whom she seemed to have some gay speech, some attractive look or action. In a few minutes young Griffiths of Bodowin was at her side, brought thither by a variety of idle motives, and as her undivided attention was given to the Welsh air, her admirers, one by one, dropped off, to seat themselves by some less fascinating but more attentive fair one. The more Owen conversed with the girl, the more he was taken. She had more wit and talent than he had fancied possible, a self-abandon and thoughtfulness, to boot, that seemed full of charms, and then her voice was so clear and sweet, and her actions so full of grace, that Owen was fascinated before he was well aware, and kept looking into her bright, blushing face, till her uplifted flashing eye fell beneath his earnest gaze. While it thus happened that they were silent, she from confusion at the unexpected warmth of his admiration, he from an unconsciousness of anything but the beautiful changes in her flexile countenance. The man whom Owen took for her father came up and addressed some observation to his daughter, from whence he glided into some commonplace though respectful remark to Owen, and at length engaging him in some slight. Local conversation, he led the way to the account of a spot on the peninsula of 
Penthren, where Teal abounded, and concluded with begging Owen to allow him to show him the exact place, saying that whenever the young squire felt so inclined, if he would honor him by a call at his house, he would take him across in his boat. While Owen listened, his attention was not so much absorbed as to be unaware that the little beauty at his side was refusing one or two who endeavored to draw her from her place by invitations to dance. Flattered by his own construction of her refusals, he again directed all his attention to her, till she was called away by her father, who was leaving the scene of festivity. Before he left he reminded Owen of his promise, and added, Perhaps, sir, you do not know me. My name is Ellis Pritchard, and I live at Tie Glass, on this side of Mole Jest. Anyone can point it out to you. When the father and daughter had left, Owen slowly prepared for his ride home. But encountering the hostess, he could not resist asking a few questions relative to Ellis Pritchard and his pretty daughter. She answered shortly but respectfully, and then said, rather hesitatingly, Master Griffiths, you know the triad, tri feth tebig why nail our law. Weist and BWR heb YD, male deg heb diod, a merch deg heb i girda, three things are alike, a fine barn without corn, a fine cup without drink, a fine woman without her reputation. She hastily quitted him, and Owen rode slowly to his unhappy home. Ellis Pritchard, half farmer and half fisherman, was shrewd, and keen, and worldly, yet he was good-natured, and sufficiently generous to have become rather a popular man among his equals. He had been struck with the young squire's attention to his pretty daughter, and was not insensible to the advantages to be derived from it. Nest would not be the first peasant girl, by any means, who had been transplanted to a Welsh manor house as its mistress, and accordingly, her father had shrewdly given the admiring young man some pretext for further opportunities of seeing her. As for Nest herself, she had somewhat of her father's worldliness, and was fully alive to the superior station of her new admirer and quite prepared to slight all her old sweethearts on his account. But then she had something more of feeling in her reckoning. She had not been insensible to the earnest yet comparatively refined homage which Owen paid her. She had noticed his expressive and occasionally handsome countenance with admiration, and was flattered by his so immediately singling her out from her companions. As to the hint which Martha Thomas had thrown out, it is enough to say that Nest was very giddy, and that she was motherless. She had high spirits and a great love of admiration, or, to use a softer term, she loved to please, men, women, and children, all she delighted to gladden with her smile and voice. She coquette, and flirted, and went to the extreme lengths of Welsh courtship, till the seniors of the village shook their heads, and cautioned their daughters against her acquaintance. If not absolutely guilty, she had too frequently been on the verge of guilt. Even at the time— Martha Thomas's hint made but little impression on Owen, for his senses were otherwise occupied, but in a few days the recollection thereof had wholly died away, and one warm glorious summer's day, he bent his steps toward Ellis Pritchard's with a beating heart, for, except some very slight flirtations at Oxford, Owen had never been touched, his thoughts, his fancy, had been otherwise engaged. Tie glass was built against one of the lower rocks of Mold Jest, which, indeed, formed a side to the low, lengthy house. The materials of the cottage were the shingly stones which had fallen from above, plastered rudely together, with deep recesses for the small oblong windows. Altogether, the exterior was much ruder than Owen had expected, 
but inside there seemed no lack of comforts. The house was divided into two apartments, one large, roomy, and dark, into which Owen entered immediately, and before the blushing nest came from the inner chamber, for she had seen the young squire coming, and hastily gone to make some alteration in her dress, he had had time to look around him, and note the various little particulars of the room. Beneath the window, which commanded a magnificent view, was an oaken dresser, replete with drawers and cupboards, and brightly polished to a rich dark color. In the farther part of the room Owen could at first distinguish little, entering as he did from the glaring sunlight, but he soon saw that there were two oaken beds, closed up after the manner of the Welsh. In fact, the dormitories of Ellis Pritchard and the man who served under him, both on sea and on land. There was the large wheel used for spinning wool, left standing on the middle of the floor, as if in use only a few minutes before, and around the ample chimney hung flitches of bacon, dried kid's flesh, and fish, that was in process of smoking for winter's store. Before Nest had shyly dared to enter, her father, who had been mending his nets down below, and seen Owen winding up to the house, came in and gave him a hearty yet respectful welcome, and then Nest, downcast and blushing, full of the consciousness which her father's advice and conversation had not failed to inspire, ventured to join them. To Owen's mind this reserve and shyness gave her new charms. It was too bright, too hot, too anything to think of going to shoot teal till later in the day, and Owen was delighted to accept a hesitating invitation to share the noonday meal. Some you milk cheese, very hard and dry, oat cake, slips of the dried kid's flesh broiled, after having been previously soaked in water for a few minutes, delicious butter and fresh buttermilk, with a liquor called Diet Gryophol, made from the berries of the Sorbus Occuparia, infused in water and then fermented, composed the frugal repast. But there was something so clean and neat, and withal such a true welcome, that Owen had seldom enjoyed a meal so much. Indeed, at that time of day the Welsh squires differed from the farmers more in the plenty and rough abundance of their manner of living than in the refinement of style of their table. At the present day, down in Elawayan, the Welsh gentry are not a whit behind their Saxon equals in the expensive elegances of life. But then, when there was but one pewter service in all Northumberland, there was nothing in Ellis Pritchard's mode of living that grated on the young squire's sense of refinement. Little was said by that young pair of wooers during the meal. The father had all the conversation to himself, apparently heedless of the ardent looks and inattentive mien of his guest. As Owen became more serious in his feelings, he grew more timid in their expression, and at night, when they returned from their shooting excursion, the caress he gave Nest was almost as bashfully offered as received. This was but the first of a series of days devoted to Nest in reality though at first he thought some little disguise of his object was necessary. The past, the future, was all forgotten in those happy days of love. And every worldly plan, every womanly well was put in practice by Ellis Pritchard and his daughter, to render his visits agreeable and alluring. Indeed, the very circumstance of his being welcome was enough to attract the poor young man, to whom the feeling so produced was new and full of charms. He left a home where the certainty of being thwarted made him cherry in expressing his wishes, where no tones of love ever fell on his ear, save those addressed to others, where his presence or absence was a matter of utter indifference, and when he entered tie glass, all, down to the little cur which, with clamorous barkings, claimed a part of his attention, seemed to rejoice. 
His account of his day's employment found a willing listener in Ellis, and when he passed on to Nest, busy at her wheel or at her churn, the deepened color, the conscious eye, and the gradual yielding of herself up to his lover-like caress, had worlds of charms. Ellis Pritchard was a tenant on the Bowen estate, and therefore had reasons in plenty for wishing to keep the young squire's visits secret, and Owen, unwilling to disturb the sunny calm of these halcyon days by any storm at home, was ready to use all the artifice which Ellis suggested as to the mode of his calls at tie glass. Nor was he unaware of the probable, nay, the hope for termination of these repeated days of happiness. He was quite conscious that the father wished for nothing better than the marriage of his daughter to the heir of Bodwin, and when Nest had hidden her face in his neck, which was encircled by her clasping arms, and murmured into his ear her acknowledgment of love, he felt only too desirous of finding someone to love him forever. Though not highly principled, he would not have tried to obtain Nest on other terms save those of marriage. He did so pine after enduring love, and fancied he should have bound her heart forevermore to his, when they had taken the solemn oaths of matrimony. There was no great difficulty attending a secret marriage at such a place and at such a time. One gusty autumn day, Ellis ferried them round Penthren to Landerwin and there saw his little nest become future lady of Bodwin. How often do we see giddy, coquetting, restless girls become sobered by marriage? A great object in life is decided, one on which their thoughts have been running in all their vagaries, and they seem to verify the beautiful fable of Undine. A new soul beams out in the gentleness and repose of their future lives. An indescribable softness and tenderness takes place of the wearying vanity of their former endeavors to attract admiration. Something of this sort took place in Ness Pritchard. If at first she had been anxious to attract the young squire of Bodwin, long before her marriage this feeling had merged into a truer love than she had ever felt before, and now that he was her own, her husband, her whole soul was bent toward making him amends, as far as in her lay, for the misery which— with a woman's tact, she saw that he had to endure at his home. Her greetings were abounding in delicately expressed love, her study of his tastes unwearying, in the arrangement of her dress, her time, her very thoughts. No wonder that he looked back on his wedding day with a thankfulness which is seldom the result of unequal marriages. No wonder that his heart beat aloud as formerly when he wound up the little path to tie glass, and saw, keen though the winter's wind might be, that Nest was standing out at the door to watch for his dimly seen approach, while the candle flared in the little window as a beacon to guide him aright. The angry words and unkind actions of home fell deadened on his heart. He thought of the love that was surely his, and of the new promise of love that a short time would bring forth, and he could almost have smiled at the impotent efforts to disturb his peace. A few more months, and the young father was greeted by a feeble little cry, when he hastily entered Tide Glass, one morning early, in consequence of a summons conveyed mysteriously to Bodwin, and the pale mother, smiling, and feebly holding up her babe to its father's kiss, seemed to him even more lovely than the bright gay nest who had won his heart at the little inn of Penmorpha. But the curse was at work. The fulfillment of the prophecy was nigh at hand. Chapter 2 It was the autumn after the birth of their boy. It had been a glorious summer, with bright, hot, sunny weather, and now the year was fading away as seasonably into mellow days, with mornings of silver mists and clear frosty nights. The blooming look of the time of flowers was past and gone, 
but instead there were even richer tints abroad in the sun-colored leaves, the lichens, the golden-blossomed firs. If it was the time of fading, there was a glory in the decay. Nest, in her loving anxiety to surround her dwelling with every charm for her husband's sake, had turned gardener, and the little corners of the rude court before the house were filled with many a delicate mountain flower, transplanted more for its beauty than its rarity. The sweetbriar bush may even yet be seen, old and gray, which she and Owen planted a green slippling beneath the window of her little chamber. In those moments Owen forgot all besides the present, all the cares and griefs he had known in the past, and all that might await him of woe and death in the future. The boy, too, was as lovely a child as the fondest parent was ever blessed with, and crowed with delight, and clapped his little hands, as his mother held him in her arms at the cottage door to watch his father's ascend up the rough path that led to tie glass, one bright autumnal morning, and when the three entered the house together, it was difficult to say which was the happiest. Owen carried his boy, and tossed and played with him, while Ness sought out some little article of work, and seated herself on the dresser beneath the window, where now busily plying the needle, and then again looking at her husband, she eagerly told him the little pieces of domestic intelligence, the winning ways of the child, the result of yesterday's fishing, and such of the gossip of Penmorpha as came to the ears of the now retired nest. She noticed that, when she mentioned any little circumstance which bore the slightest reference to Bodowin, her husband appeared chafed and uneasy, and at last avoided anything that might in the least remind him of home. In truth, he had been suffering much of late from the irritability of his father, shown in trifles to be sure, but not the less galling on that account. While they were thus talking, and caressing each other and the child, a shadow darkened the room, and before they could catch a glimpse of the object that had occasioned it, it vanished, and Squire Griffiths lifted the door latch and stood before them. He stood and looked, first on his son, so different, in his buoyant expression of content and enjoyment, with his noble child in his arms, like a proud and happy father, as he was, from the depressed, moody young man he too often appeared at Bodowin, then on Nest, poor, trembling, sick in Nest, who dropped her work, but yet durst not stir from her seat on the dresser, while she looked to her husband as if for protection from his father. The squire was silent, as he glared from one to the other, his features white with restrained passion. When he spoke, his words came most distinct in their forced composure. It was to his son he addressed himself. That woman! Who is she? Owen hesitated one moment, and then replied, in a steady yet quiet voice. Father, that woman is my wife. He would have added some apology for the long concealment of his marriage, have appealed to his father's forgiveness, but the foam flew from Squire Owen's lips as he burst forth with invective against Nest. You have married her. It is as they told me. Married Ness Pritchard Yerbutin, and you stand there as if you had not disgraced yourself forever and ever with your accursed wiving. And the fair harlot sits there, in her mocking modesty, practicing the miming airs that will become her state as future lady of Bodowin. But I will move heaven and earth before that false woman darken the doors of my father's house as mistress. All this was said with such rapidity that Owen had no time for the words that thronged to his lips. Father! He burst forth at length. Father, whosoever told you that Ness Pritchard was a harlot told you a lie as false as hell. Aye, a lie as false as hell, he added, in a voice of thunder, 
while he advanced a step or two nearer to the squire. And then, in a lower tone, he said, She is as pure as your own wife. Nay, God help me. As the dear, precious mother who brought me forth, and then left me, with no refuge in a mother's heart, to struggle on through life alone. I tell you Nest is as pure as that dear, dead mother. Fool, poor fool. At this moment the child, the little Owen, who had kept gazing from one angry countenance to the other, and with earnest look, trying to understand what had brought the fierce glare into the face where till now he had read nothing but love, in some way attracted the squire's attention, and increased his wrath. Yes, he continued, poor, weak fool that you are, hugging the child of another as if it were your own offspring. Owen involuntarily caressed the affrighted child, and half smiled at the implication of his father's words. This the squire perceived, and raising his voice to a scream of rage, he went on. I bid you, if you call yourself my son, to cast away that miserable, shameless woman's offspring. Cast it away this instant, this instant. In this ungovernable rage, seeing that Owen was far from complying with his command, he snatched the poor infant from the loving arms that held it, and throwing it to his mother, left the house inarticulate with fury. Nest, who had been pale and still as marble during this terrible dialogue, looking on and listening as if fascinated by the words that smote her heart, opened her arms to receive and cherish her precious babe. But the boy was not destined to reach the white refuge of her breast. The furious action of the squire had been almost without aim, and the infant fell against the sharp edge of the dresser down on to the stone floor. Owen sprang up to take the child, but he lay so still, so motionless, that the awe of death came over the father, and he stooped down to gaze more closely. At that moment the upturned, filmy eyes rolled convulsively, a spasm passed along the body, and the lips, yet warm with kissing, quivered into everlasting rest. A word from her husband told Nest all. She slid down from her seat, and lay by her little son as corpse-like as he, unheeding all the agonizing endearments and passionate adjurations of her husband and that poor, desolate husband and father. Scarce one little quarter of an hour, and he had been so blessed in his consciousness of love. The bright promise of many years on his infant's face, and the new, fresh soul beaming forth in its awakened intelligence. And there it was, the little clay image, that would never more gladden up at the sight of him, nor stretch forth to meet his embrace, whose inarticulate, yet most eloquent cooings might haunt him in his dreams but would never more be heard in waking life again. And by the dead babe, almost as utterly insensate, the poor mother had fallen in a merciful faint, the slandered, heart-pierced nest. Owen struggled against the sickness that came over him, and busied himself in vain attempts at her restoration. It was now near noonday, and Ellis Pritchard came home, little dreaming of the sight that awaited him. But though stunned, he was able to take more effectual measures for his poor daughter's recovery than Owen had done. By and by she showed symptoms of returning sense, and was placed in her own little bed in a darkened room, where, without ever waking to complete consciousness, she fell asleep. Then it was that her husband, suffocated by pressure of miserable thought, gently drew his hand from her tightened clasp, and printing one long soft kiss on her white waxen forehead, hastily stole out of the room and out of the house. Near the base of Mold Jest, it might be a quarter of a mile from Tie Glass, was a little neglected solitary copse, wild and tangled with the trailing branches of the dog rose and the tendrils of the white bryony. 
toward the middle of this thicket a deep crystal pool, a clear mirror for the blue heavens above, and round the margin floated the broad green leaves of the water lily, and when the regal sun shone down in his noonday glory the flowers arose from their cool depths to welcome and greet him. The copse was musical with many sounds, the warbling of birds rejoicing in its shades, the ceaseless hum of the insects that hovered over the pool, the chime of the distant waterfall, the occasional bleating of the sheep from the mountaintop, were all blended into the delicious harmony of nature. It had been one of Owen's favorite resorts when he had been a lonely wanderer, a pilgrim in search of love in the years gone by. And thither he went, as if by instinct, when he left Thai Glass, quelling the uprising agony till he should reach that little solitary spot. It was the time of day when a change in the aspect of the weather so frequently takes place, and the little pool was no longer the reflection of a blue and sunny sky. It sent back the dark and slaty clouds above, and every now and then, a rough gust shook the painted autumn leaves from their branches, and all other music was lost in the sound of the wild winds piping down from the moorlands, which lay up and beyond the clefts in the mountainside. Presently the rain came on and beat down in torrents. But Owen heeded it not. He sat on the dank ground, his face buried in his hands, and his whole strength, physical and mental, employed in quelling the rush of blood, which rose and boiled and gurgled in his brain as if it would madden him. The phantom of his dead child rose ever before him, and seemed to cry aloud for vengeance. And when the poor young man thought upon the victim whom he required in his wild longing for revenge, he shuddered, for it was his father. Again and again he tried not to think, but still the circle of thought came round, eddying through his brain. At length he mastered his passions, and they were calm, then he forced himself to arrange some plan for the future. He had not, in the passionate hurry of the moment, seen that his father had left the cottage before he was aware of the fatal accident that befell the child. Owen thought he had seen all, and once he planned to go to the squire and tell him of the anguish of heart he had wrought, and awe him, as it were, by the dignity of grief. But then again he durst not, he distrusted his self-control, the old prophecy rose up in its horror, he dreaded his doom. At last he determined to leave his father forever, to take Ness to some distant country where she might forget her firstborn, and where he himself might gain a livelihood by his own exertions. But when he tried to descend to the various little arrangements which were involved in the execution of this plan, he remembered that all his money, and in this respect Squire Griffiths was no niggard, was locked up in his escritoire at Bottlewin. In vain he tried to do away with this matter-of-fact difficulty. Go to Bottlewin he must, and his only hope, nay his determination, was to avoid his father. He rose and took a bypath to Bottlewin. The house looked even more gloomy and desolate than usual in the heavy downpouring rain, yet Owen gazed on it with something of regret, for sorrowful as his days in it had been, he was about to leave it for many many years, if not forever. He entered by a side door opening into a passage that led to his own room, where he kept his books, his guns, his fishing tackle, his writing materials, etc. Here he hurriedly began to select the few articles he intended to take, for, besides the dread of interruption, he was feverishly anxious to travel far that very night, if only Nest was capable of performing the journey. As he was thus employed, he tried to conjecture what his father's feelings would be on finding that his once-loved son was gone away forever. Would he then awaken to regret for the conduct which had driven him from home, 
and bitterly think on the loving and caressing boy who haunted his footsteps in former days. Or, alas, would he only feel that an obstacle to his daily happiness, to his contentment with his wife, and his strange, doting affection for the child, was taken away? Would they make merry over the heir's departure? Then he thought of Nest, the young childless mother, whose heart had not yet realized her fullness of desolation. Per Nest, so loving as she was, so devoted to her child, how should he console her? He pictured her away in a strange land, pining for her native mountains, and refusing to be comforted because her child was not. Even this thought of the homesickness that might possibly beset Nest hardly made him hesitate in his determination. So strongly had the idea taken possession of him that only by putting miles and leagues between him and his father could he avert the doom which seemed blending itself with the very purposes of his life as long as he stayed in proximity with the slayer of his child. He had now nearly completed his hasty work of preparation, and was full of tender thoughts of his wife, when the door opened and the elfish Robert peered in, in search of some of his brother's possessions. On seeing Owen he hesitated, but then came boldly forward, and laid his hand on Owen's arm, saying, Nesta Yerbutin! How is Ness Yerbutin? He looked maliciously into Owen's face to mark the effect of his words, but was terrified at the expression he read there. He started off and ran to the door, while Owen tried to check himself, saying continually, He is but a child. He does not understand the meaning of what he says. He is but a child. Still Robert, now in fancied security, kept calling out his insulting words, and Owen's hand was on his gun, grasping it as if to restrain his rising fury. But when Robert passed undaringly to mocking words relating to the poor dead child, Owen could bear it no longer, and before the boy was well aware, Owen was fiercely holding him in an iron clasp with one hand, while he struck him hard with the other. In a minute he checked himself. He paused, relaxed his grasp, and to his horror, he saw Robert sink to the ground. In fact, the lad was half-stunned, half-frightened, and thought it best to assume insensibility. Owen, miserable Owen, seeing him lie there prostrate, was bitterly repentant, and would have dragged him to the carved settle, and done all he could to restore him to his senses. But at this instant the squire came in. Probably, when the household at Bowdoin rose that morning— there was but one among them ignorant of the heir's relation to Ness Pritchard and her child, for secret as he tried to make his visits to Tyglass, they had been too frequent not to be noticed, and Ness's altered conduct, no longer frequenting dances and merrymakings, was a strongly corroborative circumstance. But Mrs. Griffith's influence reigned paramount, if unacknowledged, at Bodowin, until she sanctioned the disclosure, none would dare to tell the squire. Now, however, the time drew near when it suited her to make her husband aware of the connection his son had formed. So, with many tears, and much seeming reluctance, she broke the intelligence to him, taking good care, at the same time, to inform him of the light character Nest had borne. Nor did she confine this evil reputation to her conduct before her marriage, but insinuated that even to this day she was a woman of the grove and break for centuries the Welsh term of opprobrium for the loosest female characters. Squire Griffiths easily tracked Owen to Tyglass, and without any aim but the gratification of his furious anger, followed him to upbraid as we have seen. But he left the cottage even more enraged against his son than he had entered it, 
and returned home to hear the evil suggestions of the stepmother. He had heard a slight scuffle in which he caught the tones of Robert's voice as he passed along the hall, and an instant afterwards he saw the apparently lifeless body of his little favorite dragged along by the culprit Owen, the marks of strong passion yet visible on his face. Not loud, but bitter and deep were the evil words which the father bestowed on the son, and as Owen stood proudly and sullenly silent, disdaining all exculpation of himself in the presence of one who had wrought him so much graver, so fatal an injury, Robert's mother entered the room. At sight of her natural emotion the wrath of the squire was redoubled, and his wild suspicions that this violence of Owen's to Robert was a premeditated act appeared like the proven truth through the mists of rage. He summoned domestics as if to guard his own and his wife's life from the attempts of his son, and the servants stood wondering around, now gazing at Mrs. Griffiths, alternately scolding and sobbing, while she tried to restore the lad from his really bruised and half-unconscious state, now at the fierce and angry squire, and now at the sad and silent Owen. And he, he was hardly aware of their looks of wonder and terror. His father's words fell on a deadened ear for before his eyes there rose a pale dead babe, and in that lady's violent sounds of grief he heard the wailing of a more sad, more hopeless mother. For by this time the lad Robert had opened his eyes, and though evidently suffering a good deal from the effects of Owen's blows, was fully conscious of all that was passing around him. Had Owen been left to his own nature, his heart would have worked itself to doubly love the boy whom he had injured, but he was stubborn from injustice, and hardened by suffering. He refused to vindicate himself. He made no effort to resist the imprisonment the squire had decreed, until a surgeon's opinion of the real extent of Robert's injuries was made known. It was not until the door was locked and barred, as if upon some wild and furious beast, that the recollection of poor Nest, without his comforting presence, came into his mind. Oh, thought he, how she would be wearying, pining for his tender sympathy, if— Indeed, she had recovered the shock of mind sufficiently to be sensible of consolation. What would she think of his absence? Could she imagine he believed his father's words, and had left her, in this her sore trouble and bereavement? The thought maidened him, and he looked around for some mode of escape. He had been confined in a small unfurnished room on the first floor, wainscoted, and carved all round, with a massy door, calculated to resist the attempts of a dozen strong men, even had he afterward been able to escape from the house unseen, unheard. The window was placed, as is common in old Welsh houses, over the fireplace, with branching chimneys on either hand, forming a sort of projection on the outside. By this outlet his escape was easy, even had he been less determined and desperate than he was. And when he had descended, with a little care, a little winding, he might elude all observation and pursue his original intention of going to tie glass. The storm had abetted, and watery sunbeams were gilding the bay, as Owen descended from the window, and stealing along in the broad afternoon shadows, made his way to the little plateau of green turf in the garden at the top of a steep precipitous rock, down the abrupt face of which he had often dropped, by means of a well-secured rope, into the small sailing boat, his father's present, alas! in days gone by, which lay moored in the deep seawater below. He had always kept his boat there, because it was the nearest available spot to the house, but before he could reach the place, unless, indeed, he crossed a broad sunlighted piece of ground in full view of the windows on that side of the house, 
and without the shadow of a single sheltering tree or shrub, he had to skirt round a rude semicircle of underwood, which would have been considered as a shrubbery had any one taken pains with it. Step by step he stealthily moved along, hearing voices now, again seeing his father and stepmother in no distant walk, the squire evidently caressing and consoling his wife, who seemed to be urging some point with great vehemence, again forced to crouch down to avoid being seen by the cook, returning from the rude kitchen garden with a handful of herbs. This was the way the doomed heir of Bodwin left his ancestral house forever, and hoped to leave behind him his doom. At length he reached the plateau, he breathed more freely. He stooped to discover the hidden coil of rope, kept safe and dry in a hole under a great round flat piece of rock, his head was bent down. He did not see his father approach, nor did he hear his footstep for the rush of blood to his head in the stooping effort of lifting the stone. The squire had grappled with him before he rose up again, before he fully knew whose hands detained him, now, when his liberty of person and action seemed secure. He made a vigorous struggle to free himself. He wrestled with his father for a moment. He pushed him hard, and drove him on to the great displaced stone, all unsteady in its balance. Down went the squire, down into the deep waters below, down after him went Owen, half consciously, half unconsciously, partly compelled by the sudden cessation of any opposing body, partly from a vehement irrepressible impulse to rescue his father. But he had instinctively chosen a safer place in the deep seawater pool than that into which his push had sent his father. The squire had hit his head with much violence against the side of the boat, in his fall. It is, indeed, doubtful whether he was not killed before ever he sank into the sea. But Owen knew nothing save that the awful doom seemed even now present. He plunged down, he dived below the water in search of the body which had none of the elasticity of life to buoy it up. He saw his father in those depths, he clutched at him, he brought him up and cast him, a dead weight, into the boat, and exhausted by the effort, he had begun himself to sink again before he instinctively strove to rise and climb into the rocking boat. There lay his father, with a deep dent in the side of his head where the skull had been fractured by his fall, his face blackened by the arrested course of the blood. Owen felt his pulse, his heart, all was still. He called him by his name. Father, father, he cried. Come back. Come back. You never knew how I loved you. How I could love you still, if, oh God. And the thought of his little child rose before him. Yes, father, he cried afresh. You never knew how he fell, how he died. Oh, if I had but had patience to tell you. If you would but have borne with me and listened. And now it is over. Oh, father! Father! Whether she had heard this wild wailing voice, or whether it was only that she missed her husband and wanted him for some little everyday question, or, as was perhaps more likely, she had discovered Owen's escape, and come to inform her husband of it, I do not know, but on the rock, right above his head, as it seemed, Owen heard his stepmother calling her husband. He was silent and softly pushed the boat right under the rock till the sides grated against the stones, and the overhanging branches concealed him and it from all not on a level with the water. Wet as he was, he lay down by his dead father the better to conceal himself, and somehow, the action recalled those early days of childhood, the first in the squire's widowhood, when Owen had shared his father's bed, and used to waken him in the morning to hear one of the old Welsh legends. How long he lay thus, 
body chilled, and brain hard working through the heavy pressure of a reality as terrible as a nightmare. He never knew, but at length he roused himself up to think of Nest. Drawing out a great sail, he covered up the body of his father with it where he lay in the bottom of the boat. Then with his numbed hands he took the oars, and pulled out into the more open sea toward Cricketh. He skirted along the coast till he found a shadowed cleft in the dark rocks. To that point he rode, and anchored his boat close in land. Then he mounted, staggering, half longing to fall into the dark waters and be at rest, half instinctively finding out the surest footrests on that precipitous face of rock, till he was high up, safe landed on the turfy summit. He ran off, as if pursued toward Penmorpha. He ran with maddened energy. Suddenly he paused, turned, ran again with the same speed, and threw himself prone on the summit, looking down into his boat with straining eyes to see if there had been any movement of life, any displacement of a fold of sailcloth. It was all quiet deep down below, but as he gazed the shifting light gave the appearance of a slight movement. Owen ran to a lower part of the rock stripped, plunged into the water, and swam to the boat. When there, all was still, awfully still. For a minute or two, he dared not lift up the cloth. Then reflecting that the same terror might beset him again, of leaving his father unaided while yet a spark of life lingered, he removed the shrouding cover. The eyes looked into his with a dead stare. He closed the lids and bound up the jaw. Again he looked. This time he raised himself out of the water and kissed the brow. It was my doom, father. It would have been better if I had died at my birth. Daylight was fading away. Precious daylight. He swam back, dressed, and set off afresh for Penmorpha. When he opened the door of Thai glass, Ellis Pritchard looked at him reproachfully, from his seat in the darkly shadowed chimney corner. You're come at last, said he. One of our kind, i.e. station, would not have left his wife to mourn by herself over her dead child, nor would one of our kind have let his father kill his own true son. I've a good mind to take her from you forever. I did not tell him, cried Nest, looking piteously at her husband. He made me tell him part, and guessed the rest. She was nursing her babe on her knee as if it was alive. Owen stood before Ellis Pritchard. Be silent, said he quietly. Neither words nor deeds but what are decreed can come to pass. I was set to do my work this hundred years and more. The time waited for me and the man waited for me. I have done what was foretold of me for generations. Ellis Pritchard knew the old tale of the prophecy, and believed in it in a dull, dead kind of way, but somehow never thought it would come to pass in his time. Now, however, he understood it all in a moment, though he mistook Owen's nature so much as to believe that the deed was intentionally done, out of revenge for the death of his boy, and viewing it in this light. Ellis thought it little more than a just punishment for the cause of all the wild despairing sorrow he had seen his only child suffer during the hours of this long afternoon. But he knew the law would not so regard it. Even the lax Welsh law of those days could not fail to examine into the death of a man of Squire Griffith's standing. So the acute Ellis thought how he could conceal the culprit for a time. Come, said he, don't look so scared. It was your doom, not your fault and he laid a hand on Owen's shoulder. You're wet, said he, suddenly. Where have you been? Nest, your husband is dripping, drook it wet. That's what makes him look so blue and wan. 
Ness softly laid her baby in its cradle. She was half stupefied with crying, and had not understood to what Owen alluded, when he spoke of his doom being fulfilled, if indeed she had heard the words. Her touch thawed Owen's miserable heart. Oh, Nest, said he, clasping her in his arms. Do you love me still? Can you love me, my own darling? Why not? asked she, her eyes filling with tears. I only love you more than ever, for you were my poor baby's father. But Nest, oh, tell her, Ellis. You know. No need, no need, said Ellis. She's had enough to think on. Bustle, my girl, and get out my Sunday clothes. I don't understand, said Nest, putting her hand up to her head. What is to tell? And why are you so wet? God help me for a poor crazed thing, for I cannot guess at the meaning of your words and your strange looks. I only know my baby is dead, and she burst into tears. Come, Nest. Go and fetch him a change, quick. And as she meekly obeyed, too languid to strive further to understand, Ellis said rapidly to Owen, in a low, hurried voice. Are you meaning that the squire is dead? Speak low, lest she hear. Well, well, no need to talk about how he died. It was sudden, I see, and we must all of us die, and he'll have to be buried. It's well the night is near. And I should not wonder now if you'd like to travel for a bit. It would do Nest a power of good. And then, there's many a one goes out of his own house and never comes back again. And I trust he's not lying in his own house. And there's a stir for a bit, and a search, and a wonder. And by and by, the air just steps in, as quiet as can be. And that's what you'll do, and bring Nest to Bottowin after all. Nay, child, better stockings nor those. Find the blue woolens I bought at Lanawis Fair. Only don't lose heart. It's done now and can't be helped. It was the piece of work set you to do from the days of the tutors, they say. And he deserved it. Look in yon cradle. So tell us where he is, and I'll take heart of grace and see what can be done for him. But Owen sat wet and haggard, looking into the peat fire as if for visions of the past, and never heeding a word Ellis said. Nor did he move when Ness brought the armful of dry clothes. Come, rouse up, man, said Ellis, growing impatient but he either spoke nor moved. What is the matter, father? asked Nest, bewildered. Ellis kept on watching Owen for a minute or two, till on his daughter's repetition of the question, he said, Ask him yourself, Nest. Oh, husband, what is it? said she, kneeling down and bringing her face to a level with his. Don't you know? said he, heavily. You won't love me when you do know. And yet it was not my doing, it was my doom. What does he mean, father? asked Nest, looking up. But she caught a gesture from Ellis urging her to go on questioning her husband. I will love you, husband, whatever has happened. Only let me know the worst. A pause, during which Nest and Ellis hung breathless. My father is dead, Nest. Nest caught her breath with a sharp gasp. God forgive him, said she, thinking on her babe. God forgive me, said Owen. You did not. Ness stopped. Yes, I did. Now you know it. It was my doom. How could I help it? The devil helped me. He placed the stones so that my father fell. I jumped into the water to save him. I did indeed, Nest. I was nearly drowned myself. But he was dead, dead, killed by the fall. Then he is safe at the bottom of the sea?
said Ellis, with hungry eagerness. No, he is not. He lies in my boat, said Owen, shivering a little, more at the thought of his last glimpse at his father's face than from cold. Oh, husband, change your wet clothes, pleaded Nest, to whom the death of the old man was simply a horror with which she had nothing to do, while her husband's discomfort was a present trouble. While she helped him to take off the wet garments which he would never have had energy enough to remove of himself, Ellis was busy preparing food and mixing a great tumbler of spirits and hot water. He stood over the unfortunate young man and compelled him to eat and drink, and made Nest, too, taste some mouthfuls, all the while planning in his own mind how best to conceal what had been done, and who had done it, not altogether without a certain feeling of vulgar triumph in the reflection that Nest, as she stood there, carelessly dressed, disheveled in her grief, was in reality the mistress of Bodwin, than which Ellis Pritchard had never seen a grander house, though he believed such might exist. By dint of a few dexterous questions he found out all he wanted to know from Owen, as he ate and drank. In fact, it was almost a relief to Owen to dilute the horror by talking about it. Before the meal was done, if meal it could be called, Ellis knew all he cared to know. Now, Nest, on with your cloak and haps. Pack up what needs to go with you, for both you and your husband must be halfway to Liverpool by tomorrow's morn. I'll take you past real sands in my fishing boat, with yours in tow, and once over the dangerous part, I'll return with my cargo of fish, and learn how much stir there is at Bottowin. Once safe hidden in Liverpool, no one will know where you are, and you may stay quiet till your time comes for returning. I will never come home again said Owen doggedly. The place is accursed. Hoot! Be guided by me, man. Why, it was but an accident, after all. And we'll land at the holy island, at the point of Elawayan. There is an old cousin of mine, the parson, there, for the Pritchards have known better days, squire, and we'll bury him there. It was but an accident, man. Hold up your head. You and Nest will come home yet and fill Bodwin with children, and I'll live to see it. Never, said Owen. I am the last male of my race, and the son has murdered his father. Nest came in laden and cloaked. Ellis was for hurrying them off. The fire was extinguished, the door was locked. Here, Nest, my darling, let me take your bundle while I guide you down the steps. But her husband bent his head and spoke never a word. Nest gave her father the bundle, already loaded with such things as he himself had seen fit to take but clasped another softly and tightly. No one shall help me with this, said she in a low voice. Her father did not understand her. Her husband did, and placed his strong helping arm round her waist and blessed her. We will all go together, Nest, said he. But where? And he looked up at the storm-tossed clouds coming up from windward. It is a dirty night, said Ellis, turning his head round to speak to his companions at last. But never fear, we'll weather it. And he made for the place where his vessel was moored. Then he stopped and thought a moment. Stay here, said he, addressing his companions. I may meet folk, and I shall, maybe, have to hear and to speak. You wait here till I come back for you. So they sat down close together in a corner of the path. Let me look at him, Nest, said Owen. She took her little dead son out from under her shawl. They looked at his waxen face long and tenderly, kissed it, and covered it up reverently and softly. Ness, 
said Owen at last. I feel as though my father's spirit had been near us, and as if it had bent over our poor little one. A strange chilly air met me as I stooped over him. I could fancy the spirit of our pure, blameless child guiding my father safe over the paths of the sky to the gates of heaven, and escaping those accursed dogs of hell that were darting up from the north in pursuit of souls not five minutes since. Don't talk so, Owen, said Ness, curling up to him in the darkness of the copse. Who knows what may be listening? The pair were silent, in a kind of nameless terror, till they heard Ellis Pritchard's loud whisper. Where are ye? Come along, soft and steady. There were folk about even now, and the squire is missed, and madam in a fright. They went swiftly down to the little harbor, and embarked on board Ellis's boat. The sea heaved and rocked even there. The torn clouds went hurrying overhead in a wild tumultuous manner. They put out into the bay, still in silence, except when some word of command was spoken by Ellis, who took the management of the vessel. They made for the rocky shore, where Owen's boat had been moored. It was not there. It had broken loose and disappeared. Owen sat down and covered his face. This last event, so simple and natural in itself, struck on his excited and superstitious mind in an extraordinary manner. He had hoped for a certain reconciliation, so to say, by laying his father and his child both in one grave. But now it appeared to him as if there was to be no forgiveness, as if his father revolted even in death against any such peaceful union. Ellis took a practical view of the case. If the squire's body was found drifting about in a boat known to belong to his son, it would create terrible suspicion as to the manner of his death. At one time in the evening, Ellis had thought of persuading Owen to let him bury the squire in a sailor's grave, or, in other words, to sew him up in a spare sail, and waiting it well, sink it forever. He had not broached the subject, from a certain fear of Owen's passionate repugnance to the plan. Otherwise, if he had consented, they might have returned to Penmorpha, and passively awaited the course of events, secure of Owen's succession to Bodwin, sooner or later. Or if Owen was too much overwhelmed by what had happened, Ellis would have advised him to go away for a short time, and return when the buzz and the talk was over. Now it was different. It was absolutely necessary that they should leave the country for a time. Through those stormy waters they must plow their way that very night. Ellis had no fear, would have had no fear, at any rate, with Owen as he had been a week, a day ago. But with Owen wild, despairing, helpless, fate pursued, what could he do? They sailed into the tossing darkness, and were never more seen of men. The house of Bodwin has sunk into damp, dark ruins and a Saxon stranger holds the lands of the Griffiths.